I don't get out a whole lot. I don't watch a whole lot of television. I don't watch the news very much. About all I'm concerned with as far as the news is concerned is the weather because that's going to have a direct impact on me and very little else will. I told Marsha years ago that I didn't want to watch the news anymore because uh, most of the things I saw irritated me and I couldn't do anything about them. Now, I still can't do anything about them, but at least they don't irritate me quite so much. And I always thought that social media was something that people did after services were over in the parking lot. Uh, I don't have a cell phone. I don't, ha I don't do Facebook, any of that kind of stuff. So it's not surprising that from time to time, things catch me by surprise. And it's not been too terribly long ago that something happened that kind of caught me by surprise. There was a guy that was preaching what I call a prophet gospel. And what I mean by that is he essentially was saying, come and be a Christian and you can make a lot of money. Now, if it was true, uh, the church buildings wouldn't be able to contain the people in them anymore. You know, everybody would be coming. Well, if I can make a lot of money by being a Christian, that's what I'm going to do. But his whole thing was make a lot of money, send a lot of it to me so I can go out and buy this uh, multi-million dollar jet aircraft because God wants me to have it. And it's one of those things, it, it really shouldn't have surprised me as much as it did because it's something that's been going on for a long time. Uh, years ago, I was a new Christian. Uh, there were a lot of things that I didn't know and I saw a man uh, on television one time who was saying, like most of them do, send me your money. But he was using a passage over in Mark chapter 10 to justify what he was saying. He was saying, if you send me your money, <clears throat> God will give you a hundred times as much. If you send me a dollar, God will give you a hundred dollars back. Now, like I said, I was a new Christian, and there were a lot of things I didn't know, but something about this just didn't sound right. So I thought, well, I'm going to get my Bible, and I'm going to check, and I'm going to see if what he's saying is true. And over in Mark chapter 10, in verse 29, it says, Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. And I thought, wow, that's what it says. You're going to get a hundred times as much now in this time. It still didn't sound right. So I read it again. And I read it again. And I read it again. Sometimes I'm slow and it takes a little while for things to sink in. But it finally sunk in. He's talking about money. Jesus never mentioned money. Nowhere in that passage does he say anything about money. He is not saying if you, say, if you send a dollar or spend a dollar in God's service that God's going to give you a hundred times as much back. He's talking about family. He's talking about lands not talking about money at all. And I was kind of proud of myself that I'd finally kind of caught on to that. But people, a lot of the time, want to know, you know, being a Christian is going to cost me some things. There are some things that I like to do I'm not going to be able to do anymore. 
there are some people that I like to associate with that I really probably shouldn't associate with anymore. So if, if being a Christian is going to cost me something, what am I going to get out of it? Now, really and truly, that's not a bad question. It's not. Uh, if you go into Matthew's account, <clears throat> over in Matthew chapter 19, Peter asked the question, as, as uh, Brother Colonel read for us a moment ago, verse 27, See, we have left all and followed you, therefore what shall we have? Now, bear in mind that Peter is asking this question from a, a mistaken viewpoint of what the kingdom is going to be all about. Uh, the, the disciples at this time were still thinking in terms of an earthly kingdom. Now, Jesus has kind of shocked them. We were talking a little bit this morning in our Bible study period about going to different gospel accounts uh, to read about the same event and that each one will give you a little, a little more insight. And I mentioned specifically uh, the encounter that Jesus had with the rich young ruler. And you really need to find all three of the gospel accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke and read all three of them. Each one will give you a little bit of information that the other two don't. And you get a fuller picture that way. <clears throat> well, Jesus has been talking uh, to this uh, rich young ruler. And after the young man goes away sorrowful because he had great, uh, great possessions, Jesus makes the statement, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. This is verses 23 and 24 there in Matthew chapter 19. Now, it says his disciples heard it. They were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? The Jews at that time had an idea that if you were a good person, God blessed you materially. If you were a bad person, then God punished you in this life. And sometimes we, we still have that kind of an idea now, but especially on the negative side of it, if something bad happens to somebody, you know, what's one of the first questions they ask? What did I do to deserve this? You know, the idea is I must have done something for something this bad to have happened. Well, these men thought that if a man was rich, it was because he was doing what God wanted him to do and God had blessed him. So when Jesus gives them uh, this idea that it's hard for a rich person to get to heaven, they're saying, well, God blesses them in this life and they're not going to get to go. Then who is? They didn't understand the nature of the kingdom. And you get all the way over into Acts chapter 1 after Jesus has been crucified, he's been buried, he's been resurrected. But prior to his ascension into heaven, they still didn't understand it. They asked him at that time, Lord, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Speaking of a worldly kingdom, they thought Jesus was going to announce himself as king. He was going to kick the Romans out. Israel was going to be a great nation again. And they were all going to be filthy, rich, and powerful. It's what they thought. And it wasn't until the day of Pentecost when they received the baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit that they finally understood. Jesus had told them in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16 that when the Comforter came, the Holy Spirit, he was going to, number one, guide them into all truth, and number two, bring to their remembrance everything that he'd said. So after that time, they finally understood it. They understood that the kingdom was not a material thing. 
It wasn't a, a fact of, you know, the Romans are going to get kicked out and we're all going to be rich and powerful in Israel again. And people still have not gotten over that idea. They still look for an earthly kingdom that Jesus is going to come back to earth and reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years. Not so. Not going to happen. But the question still remains. We've left all for you. What shall we receive? It's not a bad question. And Jesus tells them. He says you're going to receive a lot. Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. You're going to get a family a hundred times as big. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about the church. Again, we were talking a little bit this morning about God set up the church the way he did for a reason. God doesn't do things just because. He's not arbitrary about things. He doesn't do things accidentally. He doesn't do things just for the fun of it. God does things for a reason. And there is a reason why the church is set up the way it is with local congregations. And that's so you have people who are there to help. You have people who are there to help you when times are bad, people that are going to rejoice with you when times are good, people that you can lean on, people that will help you, their family. It's one of those things, I, I, I have thought about this uh, a bit from time to time. Uh, I've always had a bad habit of wanting to do things myself. Sometimes it's a good thing. Uh, I learned a lot of different ways that I could do things, whether I was working in a machine shop or whether I was doing things around the house. I would think of ways that I could do something without having to ask somebody for help. Other people might say, well, this is heavy and I need to get this from here to there. So come and give me a hand. And I'd try to figure out some way that I could do it by myself. Sometimes that's a good thing and sometimes that's a bad thing. It's one of those things I've oftentimes said, if I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have done a lot of the things then that I know better than to do now. Because there are a lot of things I'm not able to do anymore because of the things I did when I was younger. You know, after, after they've been in and chiseled on your spine a couple of times, you start saying, maybe I didn't need to pick that up after all. There are things, you know, times when we need help. And I would rather ask a member of the church for help than to ask help from my own family. Uh, my family's not members of the church. I'm the oddball. I'm the black sheep of the family. But I would ask my spiritual family for help before I would members of my physical family. And I don't have a doubt, one, that if I needed help with something, if the people here were able to help, that they would. Now, maybe they couldn't. Maybe they're not physically able to do it. Maybe they have other constraints on their time they're not able to. But if they had the, the ability to do it, I don't have a doubt in the world that they would. And I would hope that if they needed something that they would ask me. Maybe I could do it, maybe I couldn't. But if I could, I would. But that's the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about a larger support group. If you have to leave members of your family, 
because you have obeyed the gospel and you've become a Christian, don't worry about what you've lost so much. Think about what you gained. You gained a family a hundred times as big. You know, in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, Paul said, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good to all. And then he goes on and he says, especially to those who are of the household of faith. He said, if you're going to help anybody, help other Christians. Help them first. They're your brothers and sisters. You know, you've always heard that, that saying, charity begins at home. Well, it's a biblical principle. We help each other, <clears throat> members of the same spiritual family, if we have the opportunity to do it and before we would somebody else. It's one of those things, say you have two people who have exactly equal needs and you have the resources to meet one of those needs. One of them's a Christian, the other one's not. Who do you help? You help family. You help members of your spiritual family first because they're family. But we have the opportunity to do that. And it's obvious that the, that the early church did it. You know, if you go back into Acts chapter 4 and you read about the early church there, none of them said that anything that they had was their own. In other words, and some people make the mistake, and I've, I've seen uh, commentators that do this, and I don't agree with them at all. They say this was a mistaken early uh, experiment in communism. And it failed terribly, and that's why later on you read about the fact that they were having to take up a collection from Gentile congregations. Paul talks about that a lot in First and Second Corinthians uh, in order to send back to the saints in Judea because of the needs that they had there. I don't agree with that at all. What you have in the early part of the book of Acts is you have a lot of Christians now. A lot of these people were Jews who had come from other parts of the world to worship in Jerusalem. Now they've heard the gospel there on the day of Pentecost and immediately following that, and they don't want to go home right now. Things are happening. So they've got to be supported in some way. And so the Christians that lived there, even if they had land like Barnabas did, they would sell the land and bring the money to the apostles and say, here, distribute this to whoever has a need. You know, if somebody needs it, then help them out. So they were, not, they were not experimenting with communism. They were just following God's rule that you help people. And that's what they were doing. Now, a lot of the time in, in our day and time, you know, you see somebody that has a problem and you say, well, <clears throat> I'm not the one that caused that. I don't have any responsibility to them at all. They're in that condition by their own fault and I don't have any responsibility. I don't need to do anything about it. God says we, we can't act that way, especially if you're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a responsibility to them as well. But one of the things that we're going to benefit by is a family 100 times as big. And we're going to benefit in other ways as well. We have benefits, again, in this life. Now, obviously, the first benefit is, is in the life to come, eternal life. That's the main benefit, but still there are benefits in this life. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, Paul says, exercise yourself toward godliness. 
In other words, try to be a more godly person. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. He says bodily exercise is good to a small extent. It'll be helpful to you, sure. But he says exercising yourself toward godliness has benefits in this life, and it certainly has benefits in the life to come. But it does things for us in this life. And one of the things it does in general, it gives us a better relationship with the people around us. Now, this is one of those things, it, it is in general. Now, there are times when it's not going to be that way. There are some people, if you're a good person, all they want to do is take advantage of you. But most of the time, if you're a good person, other people are going to be good people too. They're, they are going to respond to you in the same way that you acted toward them. Over in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, Peter says, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. He's mainly talking about the relationship between Christians. But he goes on, and he says, For he who would love life and see good days... Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? He says, who is going to harm you if you're doing good? Most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, nobody will. They like to have people like you around. I mean, ask yourself that question. Who would you rather live next to? A worldly person who will tell the truth when it benefits him, but he'll lie to you if he thinks he can benefit that way. Somebody who likes your property as much as he likes his own, and if he happens to catch you sometime looking the wrong way, your property will be his property. Or would you rather live next to somebody that's trying their best to live as a good Christian? Who do you want to live next to? Well, I've got news for you. Other people think the same way. They'd rather live next to a good Christian too. If you want to love life and see good days, watch what you say Watch what you do, because in general, other people are going to react toward you the same way you act toward them. If you're a good person, they'll try to be a good person too. If you say the right things, they're going to try to say the right things too. But now, if you're not the kind of person you ought to be, guess what? They don't feel any obligation to act correctly toward you either. Most of the time, you're going to receive what you put out there for other people. They're going to act the very same way that you do. So if you're looking for benefits in this life, one of the things that, that we can benefit from is having a better relationship with other people. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is what Peter says a little bit later. 
He says, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of good, or of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you're blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear." having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. He says, even if they don't treat you right, you are still going to benefit. And one of the ways in which you benefit, and what he's talking about specifically here, is being ready to give a defense or ready to give a reasoned argument to other people who ask you a reason for the hope that's in you. Now, he's writing to people that are undergoing persecution. And the idea here is, you are a good person, and everybody knows that. The people around you see what kind of life you live. They know what kind of things you do. They know what kind of things you say. But you're being persecuted anyway. And you take it well. You don't return it back to other people. And they're going to say, why? You know, the automatic uh, uh, reaction that most people have is if, if you do something to me, I'm going to turn around and do at least as much to you. You know, if you do something bad to me, I'm going to try to get even, at least. But Christians don't react that way, and people are going to see that, and they're going to say, why? Why don't they act like everybody else? Why are they different? And he says, eventually, they're going to come and ask you. What is the reason for the hope that's in you? And he said, when they do, be ready to tell them. And that's a benefit. It gives you an opportunity to bring others to Christ. We have that opportunity. <clears throat> and he says, e even if we have to suffer, verse 17, for it's better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. If you're going to have to suffer, suffer for doing the right thing, not for doing the wrong thing. But we can benefit in this life in our relationships with other people. And we can benefit even when we think things are bad. And that's one of those things, you know, we worry about things a lot of the time. Some of them are going to happen, some of them, some of them are not. But one of the things that we as Christians should keep in mind is this is not going to last forever. Uh, I know some of you have, have been in the military at one time or another, and one of the things that I remember uh, about it is a short-timer's attitude. Uh, back in my day, uh, it got to the point sometimes where you're in formation and they're calling roll, and instead of answering with your name or here, they'd yell short. And what that meant was I've only got a little bit of time left to go. And I don't care what you do to me anymore because I'm only going to be here for just a little bit longer and then I get to leave. So do your worst. I don't care. And Christians really look at, at, at life that way or should. We're short timers. We're only here for a while. We're not going to be here forever. So whatever happens to us, to an extent, at least, is a minor detail. When, when you think about it from the perspective of eternity, it's a minor detail. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, 
Paul says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. I read an article just recently that, that, that really nailed this. And he was talking about getting older. And when I was 30, I didn't worry about getting older. When I was 40, I really didn't worry too much about getting older. And even when I hit 50, I didn't think too much about it. And then when I hit 60, it seemed like everything just went downhill from there. I don't mind getting older, but I do hate the falling apart that goes along with it. But in, in, in this article, the author was talking about the, the Christian perspective. He said, as we get older, people talk about the golden years. He said, you know, most of the time, the golden years are actually brass at best. You know, things start to go. You can't hear anything. You can't see very well. You don't really want to get up in the morning because things hurt too much. You know, you can't move as fast as you used to. Things just don't go the way they did when you were 20. Our outward man is perishing. And there is nothing you can do about it. I've seen all kinds of commercials. I saw one lately. And I, I love to watch commercials because I like to see what they actually say. Not what they're trying to get you to think, but what they actually say. And there was this woman and she says, what would you do if there was a product that could erase wrinkles? It could tone your skin. It could make you feel not years younger, but decades younger. And I forget what all else. And I noticed she didn't say there was such a thing. She just said, what would you do if there was? Well, they'd be making millions and millions of dollars if that were the case, and I doubt seriously that it is. But there's nothing out there like that that's going to erase age. It won't do it. You know, your outward man is going to perish. Pay some attention to the inward man. Paul says it's being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. He said, quit paying so much attention to the things that are going on around you. Start looking beyond that. Think about the eternal things. And when you think about the eternal things, you can have a short timer's attitude. You can say, well, this is unpleasant now. This is uncomfortable now. I don't particularly like it but it's not gonna last forever. There's gonna come a time when it's all gonna be over with. And if I do what I'm supposed to do in the sight of God, then when this life is over, I'll look back at this and say, well, that was nothing. It didn't account for much. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. We can have benefits as Christians even when things are bad. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 7, Peter says, Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. That is a wonderful thing to think about. The fact that we can cast our care on him. Now, the, the problem is, is a lot of the time when we want to cast our care on God, we don't let him handle it. We keep wanting to interfere well, God, this is something bad, and I can't handle it. I can't do anything about it, so I'm going to give it to you to take care of. And then we keep trying to do something about it ourselves. And oftentimes, when we try to do something about it ourselves, 
we just mess it up. There are times when you just need to give it to God and let him handle it and say, there's nothing I can do. God will do what's right so he can handle it. Now, sometimes when we pray to God, he says, no, I'm not going to do it. Paul had a thorn in the flesh and it, actually, it evidently bothered him a lot because he prayed three times for God to remove that. And God said, no, it's better for you to have it. And Paul said, well, if God says it's better for me to have it, I'll glory in it rather than just put up with it. But sometimes God says no. Sometimes God says yes, but not right now. I'm going to make you wait a little while. There's a reason for it. You don't necessarily need to know it, but I'm going to make you wait a little while. And sometimes God says, well, not that, but something better. You know, the, the, the example that I like is one I heard about a long time ago. Kids come downstairs and they're ready for breakfast. Mom's sick in bed and dad's got to take care of it. And there's chocolate cake. And the kids say, I want chocolate cake for breakfast. And dad wanting to take the easy way out says, okay, well, you know, cake, that's eggs, that's flour. You know, no problem with that. Well, sometimes when we want chocolate cake, God says, no. That's not good for you. That's not what you need. I'm going to give you what you need instead. Because we don't know what to ask for. We can't see the future. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or next month. So we don't know what to ask for. We ask for things as best we can, trying to ask in God's will. But sometimes it's not. You know, so trust him. Let him have it. It's one of those things we just need to put ourselves aside sometimes and say, God, it's yours. I can't do anything with it. You handle it. Over in Philippians chapter 4, in verse 6, Paul said, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. When he talks about the peace of God that passes understanding, I, I, I have to think about what Peter said about being ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you a, a reason for the hope that's in you because they see the peace that you have and they don't understand it and they want to know why. Great opportunity to tell them. But he says, be anxious for nothing. We invent things to be anxious about. We worry about things all the time. And how do I know that? Because I'm one of the best worriers you've ever seen. I can worry about things that don't stand any chance of ever happening. And I can still find a reason to worry about them. Worry doesn't do you a whole lot of good. I, I like to boil it down this way. I like things to, to come down to a binary solution set. A binary solution set is when you've only got two choices. So you're going to worry about things. You can either do something about it or you can't. If you can do something about it, do something about it. Quit worrying about it. If you can't, quit worrying about it. There's nothing you can do. If you can do something about it, you're either going to do something about it or you're not. If you are going to do something about it, do something about it. If you're not going to do anything about it anyway, then quit worrying about it and forget it. And you're either going to be successful or you're not. 
if you are, you don't have to worry about it. And if you're not, there's nothing else you can do. So quit worrying about it. So everywhere you follow the logic chain, it comes to the same thing. Just quit worrying about it. Be anxious for nothing. So when you think about what Peter, or what Peter asked, we've left all and we followed you. What will we have? You know, it's not a bad question. When, when we enter into any kind of a relationship, we expect to get something out of it. Sometimes it's something material. Sometimes we just want to feel good because we did something good for somebody else, but we expect to get something out of it. And it's no different when we become a Christian. When we enter into that relationship, when we become a child of God, we shouldn't be afraid to say, yes, I expect to get something out of it. And Jesus said, in this time, you'll receive a hundredfold. You get a bigger family, a family that's always there to support you, that's always there to help you. You get the idea that, you know, I, I don't have to worry about things anymore. You know, people are going to look on me favorably because I'm a good person. And even if they don't, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It gives me an opportunity to teach other people. And I can give every worry I've got to God and let him handle it because he's a lot smarter about those things than we are. I love a story I heard once about a man who would come in and he would pick up his newspaper. And when he went into the house, he had a whole stack of newspapers by his chair. And he would put the new newspaper on the top and he would pull the, the newspaper off of the bottom and he'd start to read it. And a man came over one time, and he saw him doing that, and, and he asked the man's son, he said, that's kind of a strange thing, what's he doing? He said, well, he, he keeps a couple of months' worth of newspapers by his chair, so he's always reading the one that's a couple of months old. And he says, that doesn't make any sense at all, why does he do that? And he said, because if there's some big crisis in the world, by the time he knows anything about it, it's already been solved. So he doesn't have to worry. We don't have to worry either. Because God will take care of it. So what are we going to get out of the relationship? We're going to get a lot of good things in this life and in the life to come, eternal life. It may be that there's someone here this afternoon that needs to respond to the Lord's invitation. <clears throat> if you're here and you're not a Christian, you could come forward confessing your faith in Jesus as the Son of God, and you could be baptized to have your sins washed away. If you're an erring child of God, then you need to go to God in prayer. Confess your sin to him from a repentant heart and ask him to forgive you and he's promised to do that if your sin is public in nature then your repentance should be public as well so that you'll not bring shame and reproach upon the church or it might be that there's someone here who just needs to come forward and ask for the prayers of those gathered here for some other reason whatever your need is would you come forward and make it known while together we stand and sing